0: I want to have you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12 for our time of uh, study in the word uh, this morning. We'll be in Romans 12 uh, today. If you're wondering when we'll get back to Genesis, Lord willing, we'll be back in Genesis the first Sunday in October. Uh, But today we're going to look at Romans chapter 12 verses uh, 1 through uh, 5, and if you want to give... Title to the message this morning, uh, it would be transformational thinking. Transformational uh, thinking in Romans chapter 12 and verse uh, 2, the apostle Paul uh, speaks to those of us who have been saved through the gospel, and he gives us a command that I want us to uh, focus on uh, this morning, and the command that he gives to us is the command, be transformed. Literally, we can translate the command, be being continuously transformed. And there are several things that we ought to be thinking about when we're confronted by this command from the Lord through the Apostle Paul to be transformed. In fact, if you don't mind, I'd like to give you 11 of those things to think about. Um, First of all, uh, the mere fact that Paul would give us this command to be transformed alerts us to the fact that evidently we're not perfect yet. Uh, If I came up, in in fact, I would say that this uh, command implies a criticism of sorts, does it not? If I came up to you and I, I said to you, please change You would take that as some sort of criticism, right? Well, we need to feel something of that critique and this command from the Lord and uh, from the Apostle Paul uh, this morning as we look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Secondly, the fact that this command is given to you indicates the fact that you need to change. All of us sometimes can find ourselves wishing that other people would change or wishing that our circumstances uh, would change. But in verse 2, Paul looks at you and says, you be transformed. The greatest need in your life right now is that you be transformed. The greatest need in your family right now is that you be transformed. The greatest need in your marriage right now is that you be transformed. Transformed. The greatest need in our church right now is that you be transformed. The greatest need in your care group this ministry year is that you be transformed. The greatest need in that conflict situation that you find yourself in right now or in whatever your circumstances are, the greatest need is that you be transformed. This is the way each of us ought to to think about ourselves as we look at this command. We all need to feel Paul's, the apostle Paul's bony finger pointing at us when he delivers this command to us to be transformed. We come to Paul, and we're ready to work through our list of all the people in our lives and the circumstances in our lives that need to change, and Paul waves that off and stares us down and says you be transformed. Thirdly, a third thing that we should think about when we look at a command such as this to be transformed is that this command to be transformed evidently means that transformation is possible. And we know that simply because God gives us this command. He doesn't give us his commands like this to frustrate us. We need to see a promise inside of every command of God that is given to us as his people. When Peter, for example, was in the boat in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, he saw Jesus walking on the water. And he said to Jesus, Lord, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus answered and said, come. And guys, that command was all that. Peter needed from Jesus. He didn't need Jesus to explain to him the physics of how it would be possible for him to walk on water to get to Jesus. He didn't even need a promise from Jesus. And it meant nothing to Peter that no one in human history had ever walked on water before. Peter took Jesus command as promise enough And his thought was, if Jesus tells me to come to him on the water, then that means I can do what he's telling me to do, because he will give me the wherewithal to do whatever he calls me to do. So, guys, when you and I come to Romans chapter 12 and verse two, wondering if it's possible for us to ever experience change, real change And we hear the God of the universe speak to us and say, be transformed. Our hearts ought to leap for joy at the sound of that command. Because if God commands us to be transformed, then it must mean that transformation for us is possible. Having given us the gospel in the first 11 chapters of Romans, it's almost as if Paul is saying to us now, you are free to be transformed. You no longer have to be stuck in being what you've always been. So that's good news, right? Well, fourth thing that we should think when we see this command to be transformed is is we should realize that evidently transformation is never really over in this life. Paul gives this command to all Christians without distinction, not just to immature Christians, which means that every Christian always has transforming to do, no matter where you are in your Christian walk, no matter how much you've already been transformed and changed, You come to this passage and say to Paul, what should I do now? And Paul answers and says, be being transformed. On a related note, fifthly, we should look at this command to be transformed and realize that this transformation is something that happens over the long haul of life rather than in an instant. If this transformation happened instantly, then Paul would not have used the present tense and essentially commanded us to be continuously being transformed. So his language here helps us to be realistic about our transformation and teaches us not to expect to be instantly transformed overnight and achieve perfect wisdom and perfect maturity and holiness by tomorrow morning. Sixthly, we should see this command to be transformed. And we should notice that the way Paul words this implies that we're not able to transform ourselves. This command does not transform yourself, but be transformed. Commentators suggest that we should take this as a passive verb, which means that we're not the ones who transform ourselves, God is the one who does the transforming and transformation is simply something that we need to allow God to accomplish in us. Nonetheless, seventhly, when we see this command to be transformed, we should recognize that this command to be transformed clearly Reveals that transformation is a choice on our part. It's something that we must choose to allow God to do in us. Evidently, God does not automatically transform every Christian all the time. We must make a decision to let Him do this. So, Paul delivers this command and he appeals to our will so that we will make a choice. And respond by saying, okay, God, I choose to allow you to transform me in obedience to this command. God changes us best when we respond positively to a command such as this to let ourselves be transformed by him. An eighth thing that we should think when we look at a command like this is we should look at it and realize that this transformation that God wants to do in us is something radical. In fact, the Greek word here is the word that we get our English word metamorphosis from. And the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson defines this word as the bringing about of radical change. So the command here from Paul is not Be tweaked. The command here from Paul is not make a few adjustments or do some behavior modification. No, this is a call to let yourself undergo a wholesale metamorphosis, literally from top to bottom, inside and out, all the way down to the deepest levels of your being, affecting everything. Ninthly, we should look at this command to be transformed and realize that transformation in the Christian life is not optional. It's required because this is a command. It's not a suggestion from God. God leaves you with no other alternative choices. God doesn't come to you and say, well, you can either be transformed or you can stay the way you are. I think you're awesome either way. That's not the way God speaks to us. He doesn't provide you those options. You have one option, and that is to be transformed. As many others have said, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much that he refuses to let you stay that way. And I love that, but that's not the whole truth, actually. We would also have to add, God loves the people in your life so much that he's not going to let you stay the way you are for their sake too. A tenth thing that we should think when we look at this command to be transformed is that we should recognize that there's a target to that transformation, that there's something we're to be transforming into. We're not just to be transformed in any random direction of our own choosing simply for the sake of being transformed. Not at all. After all, our culture today is transforming quite radically, right? But not in the right direction. Joshua Harris has undergone a radical transformation in recent years, but not in the direction that... Paul is calling forth from us here. There is a specific direction to the transformation that God wants to produce in us, and we learn what that is in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where we're told that God's agenda for us as his people is that we become conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. Jesus Christ is the template. God is predestined that those whom he has saved literally be morphed into the image of his son. So when you read the command to be transformed in Romans 12 two, realize that ultimately it is a call to become more and more like Jesus every day. And the 11th, that we should think when we look at this command to be transformed is the thought, which is a question, and that is, how do I make this transformation actually happen? And fortunately, Paul answers this question for us. Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So evidently, transformation into the image of Christ, is something that's routed through the mind. If we renovate our minds, then we will experience transformation into Christ-likeness. To renew our minds means to throw out the old ways of thinking and to furnish our brains with new ways of thinking that will then give shape to the transformation that God wants to produce In our life. But the question we would then ask is what is that new way of thinking that we are supposed to replace the old way of thinking with? Paul says, Be transformed. We respond by saying, Okay, but how can we be transformed? Paul answers, By the renewing of your mind. And we respond by saying, Okay, but give us some specifics on how a renewed mind thinks. Then we're delighted to read in the, the following words in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. In the very next verse, in fact, notice the word think in the following literal translation of Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think so as to have sane thinking as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Renew your minds, Paul tells us in verse 2. And then in the very next verse, we find the words think, 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 and thinking. Clearly, Paul is seeking to get us launched very practically in this process of renewing our minds In fact, I think we can say that in all of verses 1 through 5, Paul is explaining the kind of thinking that leads to true and deep-seated transformation in our lives. And in this message, I want us to look at just six of these ways. How many of you long to experience deep-seated transformation into Christ-likeness in your life? Now, we, we long for that as his people. And if that is your longing, then these six ways of thinking will help you in the process of renewing your mind, which serves as a catalyst for this transformation that God wants to produce in you. The first way of thinking that we can identify is found in Romans 12.1. And let's word it this way. Think like a gospel-motivated, fully surrendered worshiper of God. If you want to think in a way that enables you to experience transformation into Christ-likeness, then think like a gospel-motivated, fully surrendered worshiper of God. Paul's call to be transformed in verse 2 is tied to the earlier command that he gives in verse 1. And in Romans 12:1, Paul basically gathers up all the gospel truth that he has been sharing in chapters 1 through 11, and he packs it into the expression the mercies of God. And then he says, "Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship." Essentially, Paul is saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to be motivated by the mercies of God that I've been presenting to you up to this point of this book, to present your whole selves to God all the way down to the physical part of who you are as a living and holy sacrifice to him, fully pleasing to him, which is the totally logical thing for you to do it's a totally logical way for you to worship God given all that God has done for you in the gospel that I have been presenting to you evidently if you are going to be transformed you must present yourself to God as a sacrifice laying your life on the altar And letting your life, as you now know it, be consumed and go up in smoke. As Oswald Chambers says on this very point, offering yourself as a sacrifice to the Lord means giving up the right, all rights to yourself. This means that transformation happens when we're on the altar. Having yielded ourselves to God as a sacrifice, ready to die to our life as it now is and ready to find true life on the other side of the dying and coming to know what it really means to be a living sacrifice. I think sometimes we as Christians say that we want to be changed. I've never met a Christian who says, no, I don't want to be transformed. I don't want to be changed we say that we want to be changed, but, but sometimes we really don't want to. Or we don't change because we want to be in charge more than we want to be changed. We even want to be in charge of the changing and try to manage the pace of the change and the scope of the change. I mean, after all, we don't want things to get out of hand, do we? So we try to stay in control and in charge and try to change at the same time that doesn't work. In other words, we want to change without having to get on the altar and to surrender control over to God. We want change without surrender. We want change without sacrifice. And that never works. When an animal was laid on the altar of sacrifice, it had no control. Completely surrendered to the Lord. To whom that sacrifice was being offered and to the one who was presenting it. It's evident from Paul's language here that transformation happens when we surrender our lives to God and make our lives an offering of sacrificial worship to him with him at the center and with him on the throne, with him as God. You see, when we are at the center, when we are pretending to be on the throne, we don't change for the better. We're too busy trying to get God to change or to get other people to change or to get our circumstances to change. But when we assume our place as a worshiper of God, fully dedicated to him and surrendered to him, giving control to him. Guys, that's when we are free to become the truest and the freest versions of ourselves. That's when we are most pliable and transformable in the hand of God. There's one other thing worth pointing out here from verse one. Let me just read this verse to you again Paul says, therefore, I urge you, plural, brethren, plural, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, plural, a living and holy sacrifice, singular. That's what you would find in the Greek text, though you don't see that in all the English translations. Paul's move from the plural to the singular indicates that if Paul were speaking to us. To this audience this morning, he would not be calling for 500 separate sacrifices to God. He would be calling for us to link up our lives together and to step forward together and present ourselves together as a singular corporate sacrifice of worship to God. Implied in Paul's language is the fact that if you truly want to experience transformation in your life, then you need to link up your life with other believers in a local church and be a part of a community sacrifice of worship to God and then learn how to think and to live accordingly. There's a second way that you must think if you wish to experience transformation into Christ's likeness Number two, think like a rebel. Against the world. Think like a rebel against the world. In verse 2, Paul says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Guys, if you wish to be transformed to be more like Christ, you must recognize that there's an obstacle in your life to that transformation. And that obstacle is the world which is always seeking to press you into its mold, a mold which is the exact opposite of Christ's likeness. What makes the world so powerful is that there is something within each of us that resonates with the world. And so to resist the influence of the world means to resist Not only the influence of the world from the outside upon us, but also to resist the fleshly impulse within us that resonates with the world and its messages. We call this worldly impulse within us the flesh that all of us have. So if we want to be transformed, we need to develop the mindset of a rebel and rebel against our natural fleshliness and against the spirit of the age in which we find ourselves. We need to stop just sitting and waiting around for us to feel 100% totally disposed to holiness and to transformation. We'll always know there's a part of us, our flesh, that doesn't want to change that we have to rebel against. And there's a world around us that doesn't want us to change that we have to rebel against. So we have to develop the mindset of a rebel and rebel against these things. Rather than giving into our flesh, calling its desires good, we choose to agree with God and rebel against our world-loving flesh and our flesh-loving world. The Christian life is, amongst other things, it's a life of rebellion against your flesh and against the world. When the world says you should listen to your heart and just do what your body is telling you to do, we respond by saying we will listen to God and do what he tells us to do. If the world says to us, go ahead and cheat a little bit here in order to get ahead, everybody's doing it. We respond by trusting God and doing the honest thing and leaving the outcome to God. When the world says to us, if you want to be respected and polite company, you need to respect everyone's truth as true. And you must acknowledge that there are many legitimate paths and ways to God. And when the world says that to us, we respond by essentially saying our master tells us differently. And we choose to believe him when he says that he is the way, the truth and the life and that no one comes to the father except through him. Guys, don't just naively embrace whatever the world throws your way. And whatever desires you see cropping up within you and surfacing, that's not your destiny. If you want to experience transformation into Christ likeness, you need to cop an attitude of resistance and be ready to stiff arm the influence of the world upon you. And of your own flesh upon you. If God has saved you, then that means that you are a part of the resistance against the spirit of our age. And guys, we need to start acting like that. There's a third way we must think if we wish to be transformed into Christ likeness. Number three, think of the will of God as a most desirable thing. In Romans 12:2, Paul says, "Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect." You see, the world wants us to think that its dictates that its will is good and acceptable and perfect. But Paul teaches us here that if we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, then our thinking has to be that, no, it's the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the way, the word, the Greek word that is translated acceptable here literally means well-pleasing. In other words, the will of God is not just pleasing, but it's extremely pleasing and good and perfect. And you need to be convinced of that. And notice the grammar of Romans 12, too. Paul calls us to be. Transformed by the renewing of our minds, so that, in other words, with this aim, with this purpose in mind, the path to personal transformation involves us looking at the will of God and believing that it is good and extremely pleasing and perfect, and then allowing God to transform us consistent with his will so that our lives can become a living demonstration of the truth that his will is the best thing of all. So if you really want to change, guys, make this your prayer to God. Come to God and say, God, I'm offering my life with full abandon as a sacrifice to you. And I'm giving you permission to radically transform me. So that I can prove in my own experience that your will is good and well-pleasing and perfect. My own will is not so good. It's not perfect. It's not ultimately well-pleasing. Your will is. And I want your will over mine. I want your will over the world's will. There's a fourth way that we must think if we wish to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Number four, think humbly with gospel sanity. Think humbly with gospel sanity. In verse three, Paul says for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul says. And then the first thing he says after that is that we are not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. It seems here that thinking humbly is a critical step to renewing our minds and positioning ourselves for transformation, right? Evidently, prideful thinking is an obstacle to change. People who are proud don't change. They just become harder and more fixed. They're too proud to even see the need for change. They just see all the ways that other people need to change or they complain about how their circumstances need to change. So Paul says, think humbly. Don't let yourself think more highly of yourself than you ought to think because if you do, then your pride will keep you from experiencing transformation in the image of Christ. How should we think instead of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Literally, this command reads, think into sane thinking, as opposed to insane thinking. In other words, set your sights, Paul says, on sane thinking, and then start thinking your way into being a sane thinker. From Paul's language here, we learn that we can get to a place of sanity in our thinking, but we have to think ourselves there. But what is sane thinking? Well, it's clearly the opposite of prideful thinking, right? Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself. And then immediately says, but think so as to have sane thinking. So the contrast here obviously tells us that sane thinking is, at the very least, humble thinking. And that prideful thinking is a species of insanity for a Christian. But guys, sane thinking is more than just thinking humbly. Think about what it is that makes a person's thinking sane as opposed to insane. I mean, what is insanity? Insanity represents a loss of touch with reality. And an insane person thinks in a way that is inconsistent with reality. For example, if a guy named Bob Smith is going around telling everyone that he's Napoleon, that's a problem because that does not conform to reality. But if Napoleon went around telling everyone that he is Napoleon, that's not a problem because that conform to reality. You measure the sanity of a person by the standard of how closely that person's thinking conforms to reality, right? And that being the case, if you want to think sanely now that you are a Christian, read your Bible And study your new reality in Christ. Read Romans chapter 1 through 8 and discover the details of your new reality in the gospel truths that Paul presents in those chapters. This is actually why Paul waited, I think, until Romans 12 to tell you to think sanely. He waited till now so that he can point you to something that represents sane thinking. It was only after he spent many chapters laying out gospel truth for you that he then says, think sanely, pointing back essentially to those truths so that we think consistently with those realities that have been presented to us. What has God said about you? Ray Stedman, the commentator, says... Look back over all the tremendous truth given in the first eight chapters of Romans. That is the way to think about yourself. That's sane thinking. Gospel sanity. And if you read those chapters earlier in Romans, you learn that you were once condemned as a sinner before God because of your sin, deserving His judgment, but God has saved you through Jesus Christ, who showed you God's love and dying on the cross for you and shedding His blood so that you can have forgiveness of sins and atonement through that cross. God has forgiven you of your sins, He has freed you from sin's power, He's justified you and brought you into relationship with with himself for time and for eternity. There is now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. If you have believed in him, you got the Holy spirit inside of you. You are now a child of God with full rights and privileges of sonship and you are destined for glory. God is for you. He works all things together for his glory and for your ultimate good. And nothing can ever in this life or in the life to come ever separate you from his love. The list can go on of gospel truths presented in the earlier chapters of Romans. If you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, don't think too highly of yourself. Instead be sane in your thinking Think yourself into gospel sanity, read your Bible and become a student of your new reality in Christ and then learn to think accordingly. And speaking of our new gospel reality, there's a particular gospel reality that Paul wants you to think consistently with. And this brings us to the fifth way that we should think if we wish to be transformed into the likeness of Christ Number five, think consistently with God's distribution of resources for godliness. Think consistently with God's distribution of resources for godliness. Notice how Paul ends verse three. He says, think so as to have sober judgment. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Paul has called us to be transformed By the renewing of our minds. He's then called us to think with sane thinking. And now he gives us a specific truth that we need to make sure that we're thinking consistently with. And it's the truth that God has allotted to each person in the church. A measure. Of faith. The word translated apportions. Or allotted means to divide up and distribute. And the word measure speaks of a limited quantity of something. And normally in the Bible in Ephesians and stuff, it's, the writers speak about the fullness, superabounding fullness of what God has given to us. Here we're being told that God has given to each of us only a measure Of faith. And the word faith is used here in the objective sense, speaking of Christ, who is the object of our faith, and the fullness of provision that we receive from God through Him for life and for godliness. I agree with John MacArthur, who says that by using the phrase, measure of faith here, Paul seems to refer to the correct measure of resources best suited to fulfill one's role in the body of Christ. Every person has his own special but limited set of capabilities. So what Paul is saying is that God has taken, and listen carefully to this, God has taken the full package of what you and I need for life and godliness. And rather than giving that full package to each individual person, God divides it up and gives to each person in the church only a measure. He measures out a limited portion and gives that measured portion to person A, and then he measures out and gives a different limited portion to person B and then another portion to person C so that by the time God is done distributing all the resources for life and godliness, everyone has received something, but no one has the complete package. Everyone has only a measure and a Christian who is thinking sanely recognizes this. So how do we get the complete package then? We ask. We say, God, I thought you were going to give me all things needful for life and godliness. Why didn't you give it all to me? And God says, I have given you all that you need. I've given some provision to you directly The rest of what you need for life and godliness, I have deposited that inside your brothers and your sisters. And if you want all that I have deposited in them, you will need to go to them and get it from them and do life with them and walk in community with them. Does that make sense? If you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you must think sanely. And part of sane thinking involves embracing the truth that God has allotted to each Christian only a measure of the full package that is needed for life and godliness. That means you don't have the full package. And neither does anyone else. And it means that you need your brothers and sisters in Christ if you intend to experience the fullness of all that God has for you in Christ. Paul's language here means that God has intentionally withheld the full package from you, intentionally leaving you with deficits that must be supplied by the provision that he has given to others in the church. This means that if you think too highly of yourself, and you try to live the Christian life isolated from others, you will find that you're operating with incomplete provision and you're insane. So it should not surprise you to discover that maybe there's some secret sin in your life that you just can't by yourself seem to get victory over. You've got the Bible, you got the Holy Spirit, you got Jesus, and you just can't seem to obtain victory over that sin in your life by yourself. Perhaps God left you with a deficit in that area in order to force you to reach out to others and obtain some of God's helpful provision from them that he wants you to have. Perhaps that is why you struggle with some fear or anxiety that you can't seem to conquer by yourself. Perhaps God left you with certain deficits in that area that now forces you to reach out to others and obtain some of God's helpful provision from them. Perhaps this is why you struggle with being a good mother to your children and a good wife to your husband. Perhaps God has left you with certain deficits in those areas to force you to reach out to some older women in the church to obtain some of God's helpful provision from them. Perhaps that is why a brother or sister in your life struggles with sin or with fear and anxiety, or with being a good parent, or is facing overwhelming grief that is too heavy for them to bear by themselves, perhaps God has left them with certain deficits in those areas in order to force them to reach out to you and obtain the good that God has deposited in you that has been intended for them all along. If we truly think consistently with this understanding, then we will not just thank God for what he's given to us. We'll not just thank God for our spiritual gifts, but we'll also thank him for our deficits. Have you ever thanked God for your deficits? You ever thanked him for the deficits of others? But we would be thankful for such deficits because we know that God intends for our deficits to drive us into community with one another so that we can be supplied from the Lord through one another in the areas where we lack. Guys, this is God's plan A for the church. Gifts and deficits are God's plan A in the church. And all of us using our gifts to supply those deficits in community with one another is God's perfect plan. And you may be asking, why, why did God have to set things up this way? Why didn't he just give to each of us a full supply of all that we need? And then we could all just get on with our lives as isolated beings who don't need to be dependent upon each other. Other people don't need me and I don't need other people. Why didn't God just set things up this way? Well, guys, the answer comes from the very nature of God himself. As Tim Chester and Steve Timmis have said, God himself is a social rather than solitary being. And so his image cannot be born by an individual. God himself is a Trinitarian communal being, of father, son, and Holy Spirit who is love and God wants his love to be displayed by Christians living in community with one another, with a community that is characterized by giving and by receiving and by mutual interdependence. And together in community with one another guys, we experience fullness. So let's not lose sight of Paul's flow of thought here. He tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and then starts telling us how to think. And before we know it, he's telling us that part of renewing your mind is thinking humbly, thinking with gospel sanity and thinking in a way that is consistent with the fact that God has given to each person only a measure of the full provision needed. So if we want to experience the full package of God's provision, then we must come together and we must walk in community with each other. A renewed mind knows this and thinks consistently with this. So it only makes sense that Paul would go where he goes in verses four and five, which leads us to the final way that you should think if you wish to be transformed into Christ's likeness, Number six, think like a member of Christ's body. Think like a member of Christ's body. In verses four and five, Paul explains what he means when he talks about God distributing to each a measure of faith and why God did that. He says in verse four, for just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function So we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul is saying, guys, God did with us what he does with our physical bodies. He doesn't give to any one part of the body every resource and every function. He gives to each part of the body particular and limited capabilities and functions, with the result being that the human body, in the human body, there are many members, each having different functions, yet those many members make up one body. In verse 5, Paul then draws us to conclude what amounts to four things about the church. In the church, we are many. In the church, we are one body. In the church, we are one body in Christ. And in the church, we are members of one another. To put it simply, in the church body, there is variety. There is unity. There is identity. And there is fierce belonging. What more could you want? When Paul says that we are many, he's reminding us that in the body of Christ, we're not just many in number, but we're also many in kind. You think of the variety in any local church, including Cornerstone, we're many and varied, we're many in ethnicity, we're many in age and in gender differences. There's only two genders, by the way, but There are hundreds of differences between that. I mean, imagine if Cornerstone were just 500 men or 500 women. No, but God has mixed it up and we're varied in these ways. We are many in terms of differing struggles and. Needs were many in terms of levels of spiritual maturity and wisdom and life experience. We're also many in terms of background and personal history were many in terms of gifting and function. We all have different spiritual gifts that have been given to us by God, and he gives us a variety of ways to express the gifting that he has given to us in the church. We experience incredible, dazzling variety, and yet In the church, we also experience unity. In verse five, Paul says, we who are many are one body in Christ. As the commentator James Edwards says, the human body is not a unity despite its diversity, but a unity because of it. And that's equally true for the church, our diversity of gifting and and function and the other diversities that we just reviewed make for a beautiful symphony. That functions as a beautiful whole, just like we see with the human body. Paul also teaches us that it is in the church where we find identity. He tells us that all of us together are one body in Christ. In other words, we are the body of Christ. And he is the head of the body. And as the head of the body, the body that is attached to him bears his identity. We are his. This means that as a Christian. We should no longer think simply in terms of I and me, but we think in terms of we and us And we should also always think in terms of Jesus Christ and how we experience his wisdom and his goodness in his body and how we do our part and serve his cause as a part of his body. In the church, we also experience belonging. Paul says we're members of one another. Think about what that means, just like in the human body. You know, for example, my my fingernail here is a part of my finger, which is a part of my hand, which is attached to my arm, which is attached to the rest of my body. If you want to know how much those body parts belong to each other, try removing the fingernail from my finger and see how I react. Try removing my finger from my hand and see what the rest of my body will do to you. (laughs) These parts of my body belong together to the point where they are literally members of one another. In the same way, Paul says, we are members of each other and none of us is whole without the other. If my finger gets removed from my hand, my finger will die and my hand becomes less than what it was originally. Likewise, if a surgeon were to somehow cut one Christian out from the body of Christ, that Christian will die and every remaining Christian will become a lesser version of themselves without that Christian in their life because they were members of one another. When we think about this, guys, we, we begin to realize that being a part of A church body is not simply something that should affect our thinking a time or two each week. It actually should be integral to our identity. It's full time. The parts of our human body don't just come and go and then occasionally do this body thing on a part-time basis. No part of my body has another life that it lives No part of my body can conceive of itself as anything other than being a part of my body. That's the way we need to think of ourselves, too, in the church. This doesn't mean that we're always together every moment of every day, but it does mean that in our minds, we genuinely think of ourselves as organically connected to each other through the Spirit and interdependently serving together and belonging to each other in all that we do seven days a week, we do as a part of the body of Christ and we value coming together at every opportunity in order to minister to each other and experience the full package of all that God has provided for us to experience in Christ. This is how we must think If we are interested in being transformed by the renewing of our minds. To renew our minds, we must think like a fully surrendered worshiper of God. We must think like a rebel against the world. We must think of the will of God as a most desirable thing. We must think humbly with gospel sanity. We must think consistently with God's distribution of resources for life and for godliness, and we must think. Think like a member of Christ's body. And the truth is, if we think in all the ways that Paul's just identified in these few verses, it, it won't just set us on a path that will eventually lead to our transformation. Thinking in these ways will already reflect a profound transformation. Transformation. And all other transformation that lies in my future and in your future lies downstream of thinking in these ways. If I think in the way we're learning this morning, I will use the spiritual gifts that God has given to me. I will embrace the ministry of others who minister to my deficits with the gifts that God has given to them. As Paul describes those giftings in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, I will also recognize that people need more than just my ministry to them. So I will encourage others to use their gifts to minister to the very people I'm ministering to, to ensure that they, the recipient of that ministry, is experiencing the full package of grace that God wants them to have, that I myself can't provide them. I will also want to live a lifestyle of agape love together with my fellow Christians in the church that matches the descriptions that Paul provides in verses 9 through 16. Guys, we should think this way and we should live out this ethic everywhere, but our our care groups provide an incredible opportunity and a place for us to think and live this way and experience transformation. Imagine a care group where everyone is thinking the way that you see on the screen behind me. Imagine a care group where each member looks at himself in the mirror and says, you know what, the greatest need in this care group is that I be transformed. A church full of people thinking this way, a care group full of people thinking And this way, we'll have the blessing of God upon it. They will experience the kind of community that serves as a rich matrix for the kind of transformation that God calls us to in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. If you're not a part of a care group, I would just encourage you guys to go by the care group table in the alcove after the service and get signed up for one. And find some brothers and sisters that you can journey with, that you can do this body life with together and experience transformation into the very likeness of Christ in community with each other. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that as we talk about these things, there are some who are here that have never experience the saving grace of Christ. And I pray that you would touch their hearts this morning, that they would see their need for you and that they would surrender their lives to your love and obtain the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that you offer freely through the Shed blood of Jesus at the cross. For those of us that have believed in you, Lord, we ask that you would take us deeper into into the transformation that you want to accomplish in our lives. Some of us are clutching onto things and we want to be in control. We say out of one side of our mouth, we want you to change us. And yet we want to stay in charge. And it's never going to happen that way. May we be so overwhelmed by your goodness and your power. That we just present ourselves on the altar and say, Lord, have your way with me. To put you at the center. That we vacate the center and allow you to be there. And then let you manage our transformation. At the pace that you want, not the pace that we want. To give you control of our transformation. And no longer us. And control. And help us, Lord, to think, to think sanely in the ways that we're seeing from this text. Thinking that leads us into community that serves as the context for so much of the work of transformation that you want to do in us. And you want us to partner with others in their transformation. Teach us the meaning of all these things, Lord. And make us a church full of transforming brothers and sisters. Who are delighted to participate in each other's transformation that ultimately is being wrought by you through us, your people. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you. We ask that you would receive These funds, Lord, that we give in this offering and do much with all that is given for the spread of the message of salvation through Jesus. And at the same time, Lord, we. Lay ourselves on the altar and present ourselves to you. And surrender and in love. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said.